You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 20, October 27th, 2016. Today on our show is Chris Guzikowski. He's an acquisitions editor with Pearson Learning, and he's been with Pearson Education for 20 years, 10 years in marketing, and 10 years as an acquisition editor. He cut his teeth on a book most of you in the audience have probably read, Bob Martin's Clean Code. I know it's sitting on my bookshelf, and there's actually very few books on my bookshelf in the digital age, but that book still is there. Chris was also a former member of the board of directors of the Scrum Alliance and is active in the community. Chris, welcome to the show. Daniel, Steve, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great having you here, Chris. And um, I want to ask you, what's it like? You've worked with Mitch Lacey and Mike Cohn. You've worked with my co-host. Um, you have to deal with these, quite frankly, you know, big egos and these you know, people that are legends in the community and legends in the field. What's it like working with these guys, these rock stars? Um, you know, I, I would be awestruck if I work with some of the folks you work with. Well, the short answer is is that there's never a dull day. Um, the fact of the matter is I really, really enjoy my job, and the reason I enjoy my job is that I get to work with people like that. Now, before we pat ourselves on the back and say, isn't that just fine and good, you're right. It does come with some challenges, and most of that is the fact that we have incredibly busy guys who are doing incredibly important things, um, and some, sometimes the scheduling gets a little bit thrown out of whack. That would be the top challenge. But every personality is different, every relationship is different, and I enjoy each of them uh, in their own little way. That sounds interesting. I know you're not going to give us any names or anything like that, so I'll ask you a more generic question. Is What has been some of the biggest um, challenges with schedule, and how do you solve them? Like, you know, you, you, you deal with Mr. Famous Rockstar over there, and you're like, they're months behind on a chapter or something. What are some of the tactics you use? Like, do you drive to the house? Do you threaten their wives? Like, you know, what do you, what do, you do? I generally don't brandish baseball bats or uh, drive to people's houses in the middle of the night. I, I might start doing that. That's a good idea. Uh, but, but, the, but the fact of it is, it, it just comes through regular communication. Um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I have not met one author who set out on the journey of writing a book who wanted to be late. The fact of the matter is it's a more difficult process more often than not than they're used to. It's something that they you know, can't control as much, they don't have as much experience with. So by and large, things come in late, and I recognize that. Um, royalties are fantastic, and there is some profit to be made, but the fact of it is it doesn't really compare to the daytime job. It's meant to be something that adds to their portfolio. So sometimes we just have to take a back seat. 
but as long as you're in regular communication with the author, it kind of avoids nasty surprises. So it's just, you know, part and parcel and uh, goes with the territory of this exciting work. Well, there is one author I could ask you about, uh, my co-host, Daniel Gulo. Uh, what was it like working with him? Because I could give you some insight what it's like working with him from my angle. <laughs> um, believe it or not, and I'm not just saying this because Daniel's right here. Daniel was great. Daniel was on schedule. It may not have been on his own schedule. I think he wanted things done even more quickly, but he was on the schedule that I had mentally set for him and actually beat that by a couple months. As a result, we have a brand new book uh, that's out uh, June of this year uh, that looks great, uh, and I think Daniel will attest that it came out uh, very well, and, and it's something that he's very proud of, and, and that's our main goal here, whether it's Daniel or whether it's Mitch Lacey or Kenny Rubin or Mike Cohn or the list goes on, Bob Martin. I want it to be something that uh, the author is very proud of. While it might have a Addison, Addison Wesley or Prentice Hall moniker on the book, the more important thing is the author's name, and, and I recognize that, and, and that's why we try to keep them involved throughout the whole process. So not just saying this because Daniel is here, but Daniel was great to work with, and I, and I hope we can work together again. I really appreciate that feedback and also the kudos because um, that was quite an endeavor writing that book. I'd never really undertaken something of that magnitude before. Chris, as an author myself, and I'm sure there's listeners who would be interested in possibly writing books as well. What's your best advice for somebody who would be undertaking, you know, creating a book or writing some other kind of publication? Uh, I appreciate that question because it's it's part and parcel of what I do. I welcome any and all conversations. I, I attend conferences to meet people who are thinking about writing books so that if someone were to send me an email or pick up the phone and call me, uh, I'd love to discuss it with you. And the you know sometimes someone will say, like, I'm thinking about writing a book and I have this vague idea. And then in talking it through with them, they realize that it's not time. They're not ready. But I want them to be ready when that great idea hits them to like, okay, yeah, now I'm ready. So that's why having these conversations is great. And one of the other ways to get exposure to the book writing process is to serve as a technical reviewer. Every book that I have is peer-reviewed. Um, and Daniel, having been through this process within the last year, you know that the peer review process is a bit like a trip to the dentist. Uh, you feel a lot better after having gone through it, but it's not necessarily pleasant while you do it. Um, you're opening yourself up for criticism at the first stage, but if you get the criticism from experts out there, what you get is a, is a better result. And that is really a great way for someone to get exposure to the book process because oftentimes I've had people like, I want to write a book. And I say, well, why don't you serve as a technical reviewer on this project? They go through the technical reviewing process and they say, you know what? I don't want to write a book. <laughs> uh, so, you know, life is, life is as much a process about finding out what you do want to do as, as well as what you don't want to do. But I welcome, uh, I should be fairly easy to find. There aren't too many Chris Kazakowskis out there. Uh, and I welcome any and all feedback. And um, by all means, uh, tell them, Tell me that you heard me on Agile Next. Chris, I have um, given you some full disclosure to the audience. Um, I've written three books with, uh, with under a Pearson label in the 90s and early 2000s on um, Microsoft technologies under the SAMS label. 
And I started the exact same way you mentioned. I met the acquisitions editor, which was not Chris. Um, I met the acquisitions editor at a conference at a Microsoft Tech Ed event, and she recruited me, but she started me off at the technical editor, and I did a two or three books as a technical editor, and then eventually wrote my own book. So real briefly, before we move on, Chris, um, I think our listeners might be curious is how many people do you speak to? Like your funnel, your, your kind of your funnel to get to an actual author. Like how many people do you speak to that then actually turn out to write book? Like do you talk to a hundred potential authors and one of those becomes a real author? A uh, hundred ideas get pitched to you and only one becomes a book. I think you just speak briefly about that. Uh, good question. And, and I've honestly never sat down and necessarily measured that out. It's not a hundred. Um, by and large, it's very, I, I mean, I rely very heavily on the conference circuit. Even if I'm not attending a conference, if someone has a interesting talk or session and it's available online, uh, I am more often than not reaching out to them and saying, hey, is this something you're interested in? Um, and I would say that it is um, an equal division between me finding people and people finding me. Uh, where it all does tend to come together is when I say something like, I'm going to be in, you know, in Orlando for Scrum Gathering last May, and I get in touch with somebody ahead of time, and they say, I'm going to be there too, and that's where you meet. And you go and you see them speak, and then it's fresh in their mind, and that's where I see is the best kind of uh, birthing ground for book ideas. So real briefly, Chris, you're going to give priority to anyone from an, a listener that mentions Agile next to, to be a book author, right? That's an extra uh, 10 forte points, I'll call them. Awesome. <laughs> Switching gears just a little bit, um, as you know, to the Agile community, community is very important and a primary staple uh, to making Agile work. So what do you see as sort of the prime ingredients or the keys to making community work? It's really dynamic, and if you stop paying attention for a couple months, we all get distracted. There might be something going on in our personal lives or a work project that we're diving a little bit deeper in. And then you come up for air and start looking around. Things change very uh, quickly in the Agile community, and I love it. Um, I think the key to the community is open dialogue. It is for people to not be completely zealot uh, or religious about that and to recognize that, um, you know, it's, it's called Agile for a reason. There are different aspects of it that some people are going to use. And if it's not pure Agile, that's fine. But, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me as funny when I was thinking about this is that if you go and you search for a book on waterfall software delivery, you're not going to find it. Because the fact of the matter is, waterfall is a nine-letter word that became a four-letter word. It's just something that was used more or less with derision. Agile, on the other hand, um, you know, you'll get pages and pages of results when you go to your favorite online bookseller. Um, so in my mind, that's because people are excited about Agile, but I would like to see the Agile community evolve, and I think it slowly is, to where Agile isn't labeled. It's just the way things are done. Or Scrum isn't labeled. Uh, it's just the way things are done, that it's just the de facto standard. And you know, I think when you look at the annual state of Agile surveys, I think there's probably been uh, 10 of them out there, and version one sponsors it. You know, what you've saw uh, in the last couple of years is really a crossing the chasm 
to the point where Agile is now the dominant uh, software delivery method. And um, there's still some wars to be won, uh, for sure, especially in the large-scale space where there's uh, a lot of improvement needed. But that's what I think of when I think of community. I think it's something that's growing uh, and, frankly, evolving. That's that's great perspective, Chris. And also, you obviously work in the, the publications industry. Where do you see room for improvement and opportunity for, say, Pearson, Addison, Wesley, etc., to use agile practices to possibly improve on producing books and so forth? That's a very good point. Um, I'm kind of an outlier within the um, the Pearson education area. When you think about the larger company overall, by and large, uh, the the bigger initiatives are things like, oh, for example, a college biology textbook or a math textbook or a calculus textbook for the university level. What we do needs to be smaller and needs to be quicker because our time to market needs to be quicker. And, and we've gotten better at it, but there are parts of it that unfortunately require a bit of waterfall practice. And that can be frustrating, but if you just learn to embrace it and like, okay, um, we're not going to necessarily continuously iterate um, because the fact of the matter is you do have to pick a point in time. Uh, we do a lot of things like updating our products with errata, but the fact of the matter is you put something out there on a dead tree, it has some permanence to it. And we can correct things at reprint. We can potentially come out with second editions of things, but they need to be kind of a capture of a moment in time. And that's a trick for the author because an author needs to figure out, um, you know, they need to take a lay of the land and not just make a statement as to, oh, how things, are, how things stand in the summer of 2016. They need to think about, where is this trending? You know, what will this mean in 2017 and 2018 and beyond so that there's some timelessness? And that's where, um, you know, people like Mike Cohn and Kenny Rubin and Bob Martin have been so successful because they've written books that stand the test of time. They aren't amortized over three years. They're amortized over a whole decade. That's how long they sell. Um, but we do need to get more agile. Um, we need to get a little bit more nimble and quick. And I think we're slowly getting there, but the fact of it is um, it would be great to just hit a button and come out with a book, but there is a lot of craftsmanship that goes in, and there's just, unfortunately, time that's required. And on that theme, um, while we want to talk about Agile, I'd like to, when I was listening to you talk about the process that you're using, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the evolution of your industry. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got a bunch of gray hairs in my head as as does Daniel. And I entered programming and I was more or less self-taught in the early 90s. And I would just go to Barnes & Noble, which doesn't really even exist anymore. I mean, it sort of does. But I would go to Barnes & Noble and I would buy books for 50 or $60 and I would have 10 of them. And there would be really everything that, you know, it would be my sole source of knowledge. Now between blogs and conferences online and podcasts and digital books, how is your industry evolving? And if you could weave into how Agile helps you guys evolve, that would even be better. Sure. Uh, well, let me answer your uh, query with a quick question of my own. Steve, what did you study at, at university? Uh, yeah, the furthest thing from a software developer. I have a, um, a, a BA in history and a BS in political science. So took zero technical training in university. Well, 
well, there you go. And back in the day when you were going to Barnes & Noble on your lunch hour and forking over your own money because you're a lifelong learner on 50 or $60 books, you were an exception. Um, there was a lot of classically trained computer science people who learned things like algorithms and data structures and uh, could really just uh, embrace all of that, whereas you were scrambling. You were trying to catch up. You were trying to make things work. That was an exception back then, and that kind of mirrors how the whole industry has changed. Uh, now it's more the rule. There are less and less people that are getting into this that have the formal training. So that's where an education company like Pearson comes in handy because at some point you do need the discipline. You, de you need enough discipline. You just can't be willy-nilly. You need to understand the uh, things like baking security into your code base and making sure that uh, things are, you know, secure that way. So, you know, it's, it's changed quite a bit, but now more, you know, you're seeing less and less CS majors. You're seeing somebody who is a biology major who just, oh, I picked up JavaScript along the way. I got jazzed on it and uh, I've moved into it. Or, boy, doesn't Ruby seem cool? And uh, I was a history major. You know, it's just, um, it's a generational thing. And um, as I close in on uh, 50 years, uh, it's, it's crazy how I all of a sudden feel like the old man because I see the different, the different ways in which people uh, learn. I mean, as much as my kids think that I'm really cool and hip, uh, I get it. Um, it's, it's a generational thing. So the industry or the publishing industry has kind of changed. I mean, if we were having, if I was having conversations with a potential author, um, 10 or let's say 15 years ago, let's, let's go back to the uh, turn of the century when extreme programming was coming onto the scene and Agile was really getting some traction. The conversations we would have back then were, do you uh, want to write a book? And yes, I want to write a book and here's what the book is going to be out and we would work on that together and we would produce a book. And oh, by the way, we might, you know, shortly thereafter come up with something that makes it an ebook and isn't available on a subscription service. Now, um, we try to get material out there as quickly as possible, and the demise of the book is not real yet. In fact, book sales, for us anyway, for my division, picked up in 2015 over 2014 and are trending very well in 2016. And those are physical books? Physical uh, dead trees. Uh, paperbacks, hardcovers, things that uh, people buy less and less at a place like Barnes & Noble, uh, but more and more directly from us or from their favorite online reseller. So it isn't what it once was, but um, the Kindle and the EPUB format that people reading on their iPads and what have you hasn't quite taken that over. There's something that's very tangible and very real and that really connects with people about books. Um, and more and more I talk to people and they're like, I really like learning through books. And I've seen that even with my own children. I think that they absorb things better through the physical book. Now that doesn't mean that it's um, going to be going on forever. And I think that we need to, as a learning company uh, and as an industry, be in tune with the best ways for people to learn. We hadn't even thought of a video program uh, until about 10 years ago, and now that is our second biggest channel, um, producing videos that people uh, can use to learn things like that. And that's where a place like Mike Cohn's Front Row Agile 
is, is a great opportunity because it kind of disseminates all the great Agile teachings out there, including some products of my own. That was a shameless self-plug. Who am I kidding? That's totally allowed on the show. <laughs> and encouraged. Um, but no, I would encourage uh, anybody who hasn't seen it to go to Front Row Agile and to, to poke around there, look at some of the samples, because there are different ways of learning. And, and I think sometimes when you want to a quick view of something, you're going to watch a video, you're going to watch a TED talk, you're going to do things like that. But when you want a deep dive, when you want a fundamental understanding, I think that there's nothing that replaces the book. Um, your mileage may vary. I know that everybody is a little bit different, but that's just my personal uh, biased sentiment. From my perspective, I totally agree with you. Uh, when I'm When I'm reading a physical book, it's a lot easier for me to disengage from from all the other things that distract me and I can focus more appropriately on the book. Um, and I mean, you know, with the various different devices they have out these days, you know, you have a book there in an electronic version, but then it's competing with all the other, you know, like face, Facebook and other things that could distract you. So, and I actually find that I, bu I buy more books now than I did when I was having to walk into a physical store because it's, you know, much more accessible online and so on. Absolutely. And uh, I agree, Daniel. I think it's, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're reading something online and somebody IMs you or you see this email that you've been waiting for. It's just, uh, it's more encouraging of an ADD behavior. Um, and I should know that because just like Steve, I'm a pretty high-functioning ADD. Yeah, and you know, think, thinking around that is I've I've also loathed going to from a Kindle. Everyone's trying to push you to read on an iPad or something like that. But I, I, a Kindle at least gives you a similar experience as a book, just in digital format. Where a dedicated Kindle, where an iPad, you still have the power of that computer behind you, and those IMs can come through and things like that. So you're absolutely right. I like to I like to actually kind of dedicate the time I'm reading to reading, as opposed to if I'm reading a blog post. I have 10 other tabs open and lots of other things vying for my attention. Yeah, and I, I don't have any of the studies handy, but I know that retention is higher in terms of reading a physical book. I also know that they've done studies, even in very searchable you know, Kindle and iPad formats, where they have someone read a book, just say a fiction book, and they say, you know, they interview someone who read the physical book and someone who read the ebook um, of similar backgrounds, and they say, okay, Identify for me the part where the protagonist professes his love to the lead character or, you know, something like that. And inevitably, the person who's using the physical book can usually go and find that. Oh, that was chapter three right here. Yeah, there it is. Whereas the person, even with the other person who's read it electronically, uh, with the benefit of search at their hands, can't find it as quickly. It's, it's odd, but that's just how the things, that's how we're wired, I think. So you feel that uh, my daughter, who's only four months old, and when she learns how to code in about you know, 12 years, that she'll be reading physical books? That's a very good question. I, I think, that, I, yes, I think that physical books will still be around and be part of the equation. Um, they will, I think, slowly begin to tail off. But the fact of it is I had conversations with people when we, as an industry, started seeing the handwriting on the wall that um, you know, physical books were going away, and it's kind of like not so fast. Um, you know, it's it's not quite. We're not quite there yet, but I could see a point where it doesn't exist anymore. But I think it'll be a shame. That's just my personal opinion. So, Chris, it sounds like people are taking an active interest in 
you know, continually learning throughout their lifetime and, and professional development and so on. Uh, we're seeing a lot of different certifications across the horizon of, of Agile and, and the industry in general. So what's your take on how important certifications are and, and the various different certifications that are out there these days? Uh, I'm not going to pretend to cast a vote as to which one might be better, but the fact of the matter is uh, you brought up something. They're lifelong self-learners, and that's why a company like a book company or a a publisher or a learning company, as we now call ourselves, uh, is very relevant. But they're lifelong learners, and there's different ways to learn. There's ways to kind of turbo boost your learning process. And some of that can be through a trainer like yourself, Daniel, or, or someone else. Um, and I think that certification to a prospective employer shows a commitment that you've made a commitment to learning uh, a specific task and, and you are, you know, if the certification has teeth, you have some, you know, capabilities in that. And I think it's incredibly important. And I think that uh, it's, you know, I'm not a human resources person. Uh, I don't even hire technical people, but I think it's good for the career. And, and I think it's an important pursuit. There's many, uh, many differing opinions on certifications these days. It's, it's quite a polarized uh, sort of topic. I think most of us that, that do provide certification don't claim that it's a be-all, end-all. It's kind of like, you know, just because you're a medical doctor doesn't mean you're necessarily a good medical doctor, but it is kind of a guarantee of, of a baseline knowledge and, and so on. Right. And I would also say, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you probably know more about this, that geographically it's very different. There are certain parts of the world where uh, certification is a bare minimum. You need that in order to get to the next round of your career. Whereas I would say... Um, you know, from what I, I'm obviously most familiar with the North American market, it, it isn't quite as important, or it depends on the organization. In some places, it is important. In other places, it's, uh, it can be seen as a scarlet A. So, Chris, we, we served on the board of the Scrum Alliance together, and we got to attend gatherings and sessions uh, in, in several different countries as part of that role. And you just mentioned how different geographies have different, you know, different stresses and different importance to certification and learning and career development in general. What are some of the trends that you see happening longer term with that? Is it something that you think um, will become more standard around the world or is it still a cultural thing? What are some of the things that you're seeing both from the perspective of certification when you're on the board and book sales at your day job? What I believe needs to happen, Steve, and I would think you're in agreement with me, is that there needs to be, uh, let's just take the thing that I'm most familiar with, and that's Scrum Alliance. Um, I think the Certified Scrum Master class is great, and it's a perfect entree for people. Um, I believe there needs – what is dangerous, though, is if people say, well, I'm already a Scrum Master. The fact of it is you've barely scratched the surface at that course. There needs to be a follow-on beyond that that uh, is, is is a more valuable pursuit and something that has a lot more teeth. Uh, and can enable the person to be a really, you know, recognized scrum expert. And uh, that's my take. Would you agree? I would. And I think that what happens is in all these different geographies, it's actually the same. You take that certified scrum master class and you get that feet wet, but you really do need to dive a little deeper once it's all over. 
And I think that there's a lot of people out there who don't need to take the CSM who take it. You know, they, they already know what they're doing. And yes, you know, uh, maybe this is sacrilege to say that uh, you shouldn't get that certification. But the fact is, um, it, it should be a springboard. It shouldn't be a destination. It should be a, uh, it should be a gateway to, to growth and, and doing other things. Um, that's just my take. And geographically, obviously, this differs. And I think it's also, again, going back to what I say, each company is different. Your mileage may vary because uh, what might work um, at X company is not going to work at Y company is certainly going to work well at Z company. And you just need to be, as an agile practitioner, in tune with what's best for you. If you feel you're fine with the CSM and uh, you're growing and developing and can challenge yourself on a professional level consistently, then that's great. But I think that there, you shouldn't be necessarily satisfied with it, and you should be looking for other things uh, to broaden your horizon, so to speak, and to kind of increase the level of dialogue that you do, the sophistication of the work and the conversations that you have and exposure. We ask all of our guests on the show pretty much the same question. It's, it's what our show is really about which is forward-looking statements and so on for the Agile community. So what do you feel the future has in store for Agile? I, I think it's incredibly exciting, and I think that anybody who is involved with Agile right now, uh, you know, not to mention someone who was involved uh, 10 or even 15 years ago, is going to feel very, very proud of where Agile is going. I, th I think it is transforming the way things happen and the way things take place and how things work. I believe that someone who's been exposed to Agile can get a little bit, uh, you know, I, I don't know, suspicious because, for example, uh, I imagine you can walk around work and you hear people throwing Agile terms. Like, you know, someone will say, this is part of user acceptance testing. And you immediately want to jump in and say, like, you're not doing that. You know, you're not doing UAT the right way or something like that. Um, but I think that that's just part of the natural process. Uh, the people who, you know, the signatures on the Agile Manifesto, I think all of them for the most part uh, have done a good job of letting it grow organically. And that was tough. This was something that was probably perceived as their baby. And I think that if you ask them all candidly, they'd be very proud of where Agile is and also just of how huge it is. And it is only going to get better um, and bigger. It, it isn't at a saturation point in my mind, even if it has crossed into a majority. There still are corners of the development process. There are other industries that can take this on. It can move well beyond software. So I think it's exciting. I, uh, I think it's a really good time to be in Agile, not that it's ever been a bad time. And um, my mind kind of explodes at what might happen next. Yeah, that's something Daniel and I spent a lot of time thinking about as well. And, and finally, Chris, what's next for Chris? I mean, this, this landscape is changing um, over the course of the year and next year. Any great books that you're, you're working on with a, with a great author you can give us a sneak peek about or any conferences that you'll be going to or anything special you're working on? Well, you know, it's all downhill after Daniel's book comes out. <laughs> you know, so I'm kind of living, living in the afterglow of that. That's right. Um, some very exciting things, getting, 
you know, it's, it's always interesting because uh, I'll go to a conference like uh, Agile 2016 and I'll say, like, haven't I been here before? Haven't I seen everything? And I'll walk away jazzed. Uh, I'm also very excited about, you know, the Agile Alliance uh, earlier this year in Raleigh, North Carolina, came out with the uh, Agile Alliance Technical Conference, which is really for people who have been to the main conference but want to dive deeper. And I think there's tremendous uh, value in something like that. I think the scrum gatherings are, are great. So I get to as many of these things as I possibly can, uh, as much as my travel and entertainment budget will allow uh, from Pearson. And uh, also, you know, whenever I can attend anything, I'm based in Boston in the local area, including, you know, local meetups or university-type gatherings. So what's next for me is um, still helping people learn. Um, the, the, the frustrating thing and the exciting thing, but the really beneficial thing for a, a knowledge worker in this field is that Agile is easy to get started with, but it's really difficult to master. And when you're talking about people that are lifelong learners, they're always going to want to get better at it. Uh, and that's where I come in, or that's where Pearson Education comes in, because there will always be a market for helping people to learn to do things better. And I'll just take a quick dig at, at software developers because I love them. It's so easy. I know it is on the whole, but they all want to be the smartest guy in the room or the smartest woman in the room. And that's okay. Uh, they want to find a better way of doing things. If you went into the civil engineering field or, frankly, into the electrical engineering field, that's where you go and you work for a company and you design bridges for 30 years, you get your gold watch and you retire. That's not what application development is all about, and that's not what Agile is all about. Uh, it's about challenging. It's about challenging yourself. It's about challenging your organization. It's about open dialogue, and it's about being excited about your work. So... I can only see this uh, continuing to escalate, and uh, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Don't you guys agree? Absolutely. Absolutely do. Chris, this has been an amazing show. Uh, you have a very different perspective, and I think our audience is out there is totally enjoying it. Thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure, and I'd like to come back sometime. Let's see what we can do. Next week on Agile Next, we have Jacob Creech. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.